today on Building the Open Metaverse. It's wild how fast you can move as a creator these days. Even if you're juggling a day job, you can have a cool idea, you could spot a trend and just kind of go for it. And if you can find that sort of intersection of content market fit, sometimes you'll go viral. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy and Mark Petit. Hello and welcome Metaverse builders, dreamers and pioneers. You're listening to Building the Open Metaverse Season 5, the podcast that is your portal into open virtual worlds and spatial computing. My name is Marc Petit and this is my co-host Patrick Godzi. Hey Marc, thrilled to be here. And you know, we bring you the people and the project that are at the leading edge of building the immersive internet of the future, the open and interoperable metaverse for all. And today we have a special guest joining us on that mission. Bill Sidhu is an immersion tech expert and visionary creator who's worked on cutting edge AR, VR, and AI projects at Google. He's also an influential content creator with over a million followers, including me, across YouTube, TikTok, and several others. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Longtime listener, first time dialer. So great to be here. So as you know, if you're a listener, the first question we like to ask is for you to describe your journey to the metaverse in your own words. My journey to the metaverse really started at the age of 11. I fell in love with visual effects. I was in India at the time and learning Flash 5, that was the extent of interactive stuff on the web back then. And then I saw this little old show on Discovery Kids called Mega Movie Magic. And they had this amazing episode on Independence Day. And what I saw was the sequence where the mothership arrives over New York City and kind of blows the city to smithereens. And they were doing all of this on a computer. And it blew my mind, like the same computer that I was using to make these cartoony vector animations could be capable of doing something that seamlessly blended the physical and the digital worlds. And I wanted to learn how to do that. And so that took me down the path of learning 3ds Max, Maya, After Effects, all that good stuff. And I fell in love with visual effects and specifically digital compositing and blending 3D elements into the real world. And that sort of blending of the physical and digital has been a theme throughout my career. As I got older, I got more into the technical side of things, ended up studying computer science and business administration at the University of Southern California. And then as I graduated in 2013, this is when the mobile boom was taking place. And so that got me into product design and then really spent a decade doing AR, VR. So went from design to production and then product management on the platform side to product. And along the way, I've continued to flex my creative muscles making really fun short-form VFX and playing with the latest AI tools, and here we are today. Look, you've had a very impressive career bridging the physical and digital worlds. I'm clearly a fan of the 3D Digital Twins work you did at Google, also a fan of all the viral AR effects and videos that you've put out there. I mean, what are some of your biggest lessons learned or takeaways? Gosh, there's a bunch to distill here. I would say the meta takeaway really is that there are fun things that you can do on a tanker ship and then there's really fun things you can do on the speedboat, right? And what I mean by tankership is large companies, platforms that have the resources to tackle problem spaces that you just can't otherwise. Digital twins certainly being one of them, but also like the stuff you can do as an individual creator on these speedboats, right? And so let me start with a speedboat and then get to the tankership. It's wild how fast you can move as a creator these days, right? Like even if you're juggling a day job as I did for an extended period of time, you could have a cool idea, you could spot a trend and just kind of go for it, right? And if you can find that sort of intersection of content market fit, sometimes you'll go viral. And that's just a lot of fun and it becomes this like addictive feedback loop. And so that's kind of what let me, and it's kind of wild to even look back. I was tallying up all my views, it's like 350 million views across YouTube and TikTok, 
over a million followers, as you said. And as we were talking in our prep call, like Mark, you mentioned the 100 million views on the AR filters. And that's kind of wild to think that a solo creator in this day and age can have that type of impact is awe-inspiring to me and keeps me going every day. But on the other hand, there are things that you can only do on the tanker ship, right? And so I would say two areas come to mind there, both with interesting takeaways. The first one is definitely, if we go back maybe three or four hype cycles ago to VR cameras and VR media in the early days of VR, circa 2016, 2017, working on immersive capture systems, jump in VR 180 at Google, and then producing content that drove billions of hours of watch time on YouTube was just a lot of fun. And you can't seed a new form of immersive media anywhere else. And to be able to do that on a platform like YouTube with YouTube VR was amazing. And interesting lessons there. I mean, similar to what I said, like if you want outliers, one of the things that really crystallized for me back then was you have to build for the next generation, both the next generation of consumers or viewers, as well as the creators, right? And so we did a bunch of stuff. So I had a chance to produce stuff like Elton John VR, Coachella, a bunch of stuff with Warner Music, but then also cool stuff with YouTube native creators like Temple Run VR and So Crispy Media, really cool guy that ended up doing all the stuff for Mr. Beast in his Squid Games episode. And so like, what was interesting to me looking back at that, like the stuff that really disproportionately outperformed was the stuff that targeted these native creators. It was the younger viewers, like younger celebrities, younger boy bands that like drew in audiences to go dust off their like cardboard VR headset or go buy a headset to be able to feel like they're actually there with these folks. That was kind of mind blowing. Also on the creation end, it's like you work with a lot of top agencies but it was Sam, a 20-something, the two other creators at So Crispy Media that were just did things with the capabilities that we kind of gave them that ran rings around all the top-tier agencies. So at that time, one of the things I had a chance to work on was depth-based stitching. So if you know stereo VR media, especially 360 VR media, 60 frames per second, two eyes, doing any kind of complex compositing is just a gigantic pain in the behind. And so we launched depth-based stitching back then, which looking at monocular depth estimation now feels like, oh my God, that's so dated. But it was super wild, the type of stuff this kid was able to do. And I think that content still holds up. So if you go look up Tiny Tank VR on YouTube and watch it in the latest headsets, it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. And the last one is really digital twins. This is where I spent four years of my life. And obviously, Patrick, that's where you and I got to meet and work on some really cool stuff together. Google Maps had obviously been a thing. Google Earth had been a thing. But the opportunity to sort of remap the world with a new set of sensors, the latest satellite, aerial, and ground-level imagery, and creating this ground-up digital twin that is perhaps the most ubiquitous digital twin of the world was just an amazing, amazing experience. And this digital twin powers so much. It connects the worlds of bits and atoms, which to me is a fundamental characteristic of the metaverse, right? It powers everything from navigation to flood forecasting to AR, VR. And so... There I learned, you know, obviously all that goes into creating this type of digital twin, but also about how do you get a very large incumbent organization to disrupt themselves rather than being disrupted. And that's a lesson that I'm going to take with me into the future because building something is half of the challenge. The other half is also getting it out to people. So the last thing I'll say here is working on the AR Core Geospatial API, which was launched at IO last year, and then the 3D Tiles API which we had a chance to work on that came out this IO. It's like taking 15 years of imagery and making it accessible to everyone now, not just for internal applications, is absolutely wild, right? To think that 
you can be anywhere in the world with Street View, which is over 100 countries, and you get sub-meter visual localization accuracy, right? And a couple degrees of rotational accuracy is kind of mind-blowing. And it's out there at no cost to developers. And similar thing with 3D tiles, right? Like this data set that's sort of been the crown jewels and stayed in sort of consumer applications is now available to developers. And I think like we're just seeing the initial signs of what people are going to do with this stuff, right? And just scratching the surface of all the cool stuff that's going to happen with these technologies. And we're sort of laying these platform primitives. And gosh, every day, even when I look on LinkedIn, I'll see sometimes on, you know, Patrick, your feed, you're retweeting all this cool stuff that people are doing that there's no way you could have thought of that and put that in some PRD on like all the possible use cases of this stuff. And then finally, consumer stuff, like giving it to developers is fun, but to have had the opportunity to be one of the co-founders of ImmersiveView and create something that brings together 3D visualization, cloud rendering, real world simulation, and Nerf tech in service of user experience was amazing and a testament to the awesome folks I got to work with at Google. Because, hey, there's Street View, Live View, and now there's Immersive View. So I'm super excited to see what happens on both fronts, the consumer and developer. And gosh, we're just in like the first or second innings. Talking about that, you've been putting out a lot of content recently on the latest capture technology. So what excites you the most about this evolution of 3D mapping techniques? We had photogrammetry, nerve, neural radiance fields, and now we have Gaussian splats, GASP, if I'm not mistaken. How do you think those technologies will impact everything we do, including architecture, real estate, and design? One observation, especially with the Gaussian splatting stuff, certainly is the velocity at which people are going from research to product. I mean, just hot off the presses, Polycam yesterday rolled out support for Gaussian splatting. And, you know, reality capture, which is the bucket I put all of this stuff in because the techniques always keep evolving. But at the end of the day, it's a form of reality capture. Photogrammetry is obviously not new. Both of y'all and your listeners probably know this has been around since like before there were computers. Photogrammetry was a thing, right? And then obviously it took data center scale and large teams of experts to do this stuff. And then you got tools like, you know, Agisoft Metashape, Reality Capture, and all these other tools that let you do it on a consumer GPU. So all these technologies of getting more and more accessible, right? So it's even funny, like NERFs, what ostensibly came out maybe two years ago as a research paper. And then they bled into product, obviously Luma leading the charge on one end. I love listening to that episode y'all had with Amit. And then the stuff Google's doing with pre-rendered Nerf fly-through is also super, super exciting. And you know, caution splatting is like maybe two months old. So from two years to two months from research to product, oh my God, I can't even fathom what the velocity is going to be from here. Can it even get faster? I don't know. Two, two seems like the upper bound for how fast it can get. But speaking to Mark, your point about how is this going to impact all these use cases? I kind of view it as like this world model. You have these like 3D world models that have three facets. You can make these like, it's for visualization, analysis, and machine understanding is kind of roughly how I bucket it. You've got these beautiful human readable models, right? Like, so nerfs, you know, photogrammetry, Gaussian splats, something that a human could look at. It's like, oh, this is exactly what reality looks like. Then you've also got these sort of abstracted representations that are really useful for all the geoint stuff that's been happening in Esri land and so forth, you know, view shed analysis, like doing all sorts of like classification work, really, really cool stuff there. And finally, like this machine readable model that makes zero sense to a human, but you can do things like localization, obviously like all the slam stuff that powers automotive navigation and so forth. And so all those facets are getting democratized, right? Like you could go take a 360 camera. There's a bunch of technologies out there for you to build your own VPS map, right? And now 
on the visualization end, we're taking that step up from like photogrammetry assets that ostensibly have already impacted gaming, right? So games like obviously Battlefronts and Call of Duty, where it's way easier to go into your freaking like parking lot and photo scan a bunch of things and then sort of optimize them and kitbash reality together to sort of replicate the complexity of reality. But you still have a lot of human effort in the loop with stuff like nerfs and gasp. Like, oh my God, like it's getting way, way like fat, like it's way cleaner to go from those input images to something that just looks production ready. And you're starting to see that bleed into virtual production already, right? Like Nerf's a super hot topic. And I think Gasp, by virtue of it being an easier, unlike this sort of implicit black box representation of Nerf's, the fact that it's just like the best of classical computer graphics meet ML-based approaches for training it's easier to integrate it in photogrammetry pipelines. So I'm excited to see more and more photogrammetry players that haven't, I would say the incumbents in photogrammetry, like the bigger apps like Agisoft, Metashape, and of course, Reality Capture and so forth, the context capture with Bentley. I think they, they will not be able to help but adopt radiance fields and these sort of light field-esque representations. It's not exactly light field, technically speaking, but certainly models the complexity of reality. So I think it's just going to be a key primitive for utility and delight, and it'll be easier and easier to capture these things and now render these things. So interoperability hopefully will get addressed with the Gaussian splatting and associated techniques. So how cool to go from stuff that required massive data centers to your freaking iPhone and like a consumer GPU to do some wild stuff with it. Mark, you may know, but Bill's social media is where I go to learn about a lot of this emergent tech. Uh, and one of the things I, I really like is the reskinning reality video that, where you're showcasing generative AI with the 3D scan. Could you walk us through how you made it and the creative vision and the technical process? Yeah, that was a fun one. That's uh, my current affliction on social media has definitely been Twitter and X. And I think that was like one of my first posts that went viral this past March on there. And sort of like the, the vision behind it really is just like taking all the primitives that I'm interested in. And like you play with Lego bricks, you just kind of, how do you put them together in interesting combinations? Because one of the things I find is like, we're at this place where like new primitives keep dropping and we haven't put them in the most obvious permutations and combinations. And one of them for me is like when Stable Diffusion 2.0 came out, this was like late last year, they rolled out something called depth to image because, you know, like. Typing in a text prompt and getting something cool is fun, but I call it like slot machine AI, where you just keep like re-rolling the prompt and hope for something interesting. But how do you exert control over that image generation process? And so depth to image was the first inkling of that. But as you know, depth as a way of conditioning image generation, like depth certainly models the geometry of the scene, but it loses all the high frequency texture detail and all this other stuff that you kind of need to, my goal was really to reskin reality. How do you capture something and sort of restyle it while staying faithful to the spatial composition and contents of the scene? A fancy filter, if you will, right? It's probably the simplest way to describe this. Then ControlNet dropped earlier this year and ControlNet took like, hey, here's all these task specific models that have been in the computer vision space forever for depth estimation you know, computing edge maps, computing normal maps. How do you use all of that to accomplish that same goal? And so this experiment came out of, you know, I'd done this 3D capture. My parents just recently retired. And so they were leaving their house in India. And before they did that, I just like being a photo scanning nerd, I went and like immaculately captured it. 
And I wanted to see, could I rescan my mom's drawing room as, as she likes to call it? And what would it look like if I wanted to do different styles of Indian decor? Is this something that's possible? And so I tried that out, basically taking those images, creating a photogrammetry model from that, taking the depth maps that you get, but then also using control net to compute the edge maps. So between that combination of depth and canny edge detection, you can model, like, or you could get a good sense of both of the scenes. So like, you know, you got the furniture that's really nicely represented with a depth map. And then the paintings on the wall, the nuances, all the furniture, texture, detail pop out very nicely in these edge maps. And so using control net to create keyframes and this software called Ebsynth, which is not even ML, but is used to sort of interpolate between these keyframes, putting all that together to reskin reality. And what was wild is when I showed that to my mom, even without really any fancy prompting, the paintings even that were being replaced were like regionally accurate. She's like, oh, this is so-and-so ruler in Rajasthan in India. And I was like, oh, wow, like somehow latent space still has, it's organized in, in a fashion that's still perhaps somewhat semantically meaningful. And what's wild, obviously, is you fast forward a couple months and tools like Kyber AI make that super hacky workflow one click. And so it was kind of cool to like create this trend of, hey, like let's scan something and then like reskin it. And then seeing this like explosion of creators doing exactly that with Luma and Kyber now as a one-click thing rather than this like lofty pipeline. So it's a lot of fun and perhaps also speaks to how trends these days also even last just two or three months because of the type of engagement I got on that in March. It's nothing compared to if I post that today, people are like, we've seen reskinning reality, Blavel. This is old hat. What's the next thing? So let's go back to the speedboat and tankers because you have that unique point of view. You've worked at both big tech companies and you're now an independent creator. How do you think AI, back to what you just said, will empower both major studios and indie creators? I think that is the, the, the trillion dollar question right now. And it's, it's kind of funny because at a high level, I think there's like a multiplier effect that's going to happen where you're going to be able to apply high visual fidelity content in places where there wasn't going to be the budget for it or places you wouldn't expect it, such as social media, for example, right? Like you're, you're sort of used to these fast produced pieces of content. Suddenly you can up-level the production quality there massively, right? So indies will be able to rival the output of a studio and then holy crap, studios are going to set whole new standards altogether, right? I often think about like, what is Marvel going to do with their treasure trove of visual mommy? They've got just insane, insane, insane IP an amazing artwork that hundreds and thousands of people have poured blood, sweat, and tears into, right, for the longest time. And so I'm really, really excited to see what happens. Yet there's this like weird handcuffing situation with all the bigger companies. Everyone's worried about, oh, well, what's the data provenance of this stuff? Can I actually like play with this stuff in production? And so I haven't seen as many major studios play with this stuff. And when they have, there's been this like visceral backlash so if you think of Marvel just had like Secret Invasion come out and the introduction sequence for Secret Invasion used a bunch of custom trained models and, and it was done with generative AI and it kind of thematically fit into the theme of sort of these shape-shifting aliens that are a subject of that Marvel IP. And oh my God, if you go look at the comments on the internet, like it was scathing. And so I think stuff like that is scaring the incumbents, the bigger studios to play with it. So funnily and ironically enough, it's sort of the indies that are most in, unencumbered to play with this stuff right now, which is where you're seeing perhaps a lot of the innovation. But I think that's only just a question of time, right? Like clearly there needs to be some legal precedent set about 
whether it's considered fair use for these models to train on copyright imagery or whether it's not. And I think all of that stuff will solve itself, right? Because in parallel, you have companies like Adobe, Shutterstock, Getty, sort of focusing on data sets where they do have rock solid provenance and providing an alternative. I had a chance to interview some of the Adobe folks working on that stuff, and they kind of described it as putting their models on a data diet, right? And so we'll see, we've got these like massive models that take all the complexity of stuff that humans have imaged and created. And then on the other hand, you've got where you, these, these models that have rock solid data provenance, perhaps a much smaller controlled data set, stock imagery, for example. So the optionality is going to be there and it'll be exciting to see major studios hop on board. But as always, it's the innovator's dilemma sort of in play as well, right? Will these folks jump on board? Will there be a new set of Pixars that emerge, or will it be the unbundling of Pixars and sort of how we saw celebrities get unbundled into sort of online influencers, macro influencers that in aggregate might have the reach of, say, a Tom Cruise? So that part is hard to say, but you know, I've got a feeling adoption is only a question of time, but the folks doing the coolest stuff, definitely in indie land, they don't have to worry about a massive legal department. <laughs> so do you have a quick recommendation for artists who are worried about AI? What would you tell them? One of the things I see happening is it's, it's sort of the demise of specialization. The way we've made content, and both of y'all are intimately familiar with this, it's been this like waterfall approach of specialization. You've got modeling artists, you've got riggers, you've got texturing artists, people who just make an entire career specializing in this digital compositors where I got into all this stuff. And that's their career. I think what happens now is that sort of T-shaped set of expertise where, hey, you learn to work or a little cross-functionally so you can chain a bunch of these people together into this assembly line pipeline is less relevant and your deep well of expertise can now be augmented by these AI models. So I like to say you go from being T-shaped to a tripod or a table. And so what I tell creators and technologists that are getting into just creative tech in general is like, embrace that. Like the stuff you're good at, awesome but lean on these models to do all this other stuff. Like the thing I suck at is coming up with freaking titles and thumbnails. And even that is like a freaking career for people that get paid big bucks just to come up with high click-through rate titles and thumbnails. Well, you could use an AI model to do that, right? And so all these crazy ideas you had that you couldn't have accomplished by yourself, you can now sort of, to put a different way, it's fun to play an instrument in the symphony but now you can orchestrate the symphony, right? And play the instruments you like, but orchestrate these models to do the rest. And so the one thing I would say is like, please play with these models. Don't be afraid of it. Because I found when people do play with them, they realize it's not this like big, bad, crazy kaiju Godzilla that's going to take their jobs. And it's more like this like friendly house spider that's in their backyard. And then eventually they realize, actually, this is for my own benefit. I could, this is just another tool. Like everyone freaked out about Photoshop. Gosh, the transition from film to digital video, everyone had these pangs of anxiety. It's just like maybe the rate at which is happening is drawing up a little more anxiety than it should, but it's just another tool. And we creators will learn to operate at a higher level of abstraction and still stay relevant. So there's clearly a lot to unpack with AI. And I wanted to ask you about what do you think potential risks or downsides that most concern you for personalized, addictive AI content and how you think we could avoid these? There is definitely a dark side to all of this, right? So it's not all rainbows and sunshine. So I think we have to be honest about that. And already this like transition we've seen from sort of, look, I'm, I'm a millennial with back pain. I still love YouTube a lot. Of course, I use TikTok. That's my biggest channel. 
But the experience as a consumer is so different, right? Like on YouTube, pre-shorts, of course. Now everything has a feed of content where you don't really decide. It's an infinite feed of content. And the algorithm sort of decides what to show you next. What I'm finding is like, as we sort of, to contrast the YouTube experience where like maybe you search for something, it's on your homepage, you watch a video, you decide what to watch next versus just scrolling to the next thing. And you're passively sort of consuming in this sort of feed style model, which is very ubiquitous now. I think that's going to get supercharged with generative AI, right? Like the real dystopian vision of this is perhaps you've got the perfect biometric feedback loop, whether it's like eye gaze detection and, you know, based on how the blood vessels in your eyes are moving, your heart rate and blood pressure, maybe you've got a bunch of IoT sensors on and screw in retention editing on YouTube. You have real time retention editing happening to hack your attention. And obviously that's going to be great for monetization, right? So you almost have this like tension between well-being and monetization that I think platforms need to really care about, but also creators, because before that automated, fully generative feed of content happens, and I'm convinced that'll happen for some long tail set of content that perhaps creators don't even enjoy making anyway. I think it's very, very important not to create a treadmill of your own design that exhausts you. Because the other aspect that I worry about, there's the platform side where how do you balance these two kind of opposing tensions um, how do you keep engagement high, also keep well-being high, but also have a thriving multi-party marketplace where you can monetize this stuff, both as advertisers, the platform itself, and, and creators? Because like storage compute and certainly GPUs, you got to pay the Jensen tax at some point too. But on the creation end too, right? Like I love folks like Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but like Gary V is like very popular for if you're not making 10 pieces of TikTok a day, you're just like missing out. You got to be cranking out content every single day. And in this sort of feed economy, just like bombarding content online so that a few of them break through. So I see a world where we have to make a decision where, hey, like, do I want to automate my job as a creator so I can like spend half the time making the same amount of content and have a fulfilling life and spend time in the real world? Or is it going to kind of become like this sort of race to the bottom where everyone's like, well, crap, now I can automate this stuff. So I'm going to take that extra time and make even more content. And so the expectation for creators to break through goes from like five or 10 pieces of content a week to 100 pieces of content. I think that could end badly for, for mental health and some of the other things we talked about. So, and you've been very thoughtful in your content and talking about the ethics around emerging technology and, and you just talked about well-being. So what do you think are the steps and the mindset that, those platforms, policymakers, and even creators themselves should take to make sure that AI does have a positive impact. There's a quote that really resonated with me or a paraphrasing of the quote, which is like, generative AI is to the world of bits that atomic energy is to the world of atoms. And I think that's actually the case because it can be extremely enriching and extremely disruptive for the reasons we just discussed, right? So there's certainly the value alignment challenges. And that goes back to, well, whose value are we aligning to, right? There's, there's values about like what it means to be a creator, what's a fulfilling life as a creator, same thing on the consumption end. But then also as these models become sort of the lens through which we consume information, all the stuff that social media and search companies have been dealing with, like values in many ways are like geopolitical in nature, but then there are some agreed upon universal values. I think that's going to be very challenging. I don't think there's an answer for that. I certainly don't pretend to have them. But what I've noticed is that like the thing we really need to be cautious of as a step towards regulation, we can end up creating the very thing that we are seeking to avoid happening. So what do I mean by that? 
So if you saw any of the, the various like congressional and Senate hearings on AI, like there's a big narrative happening about on one hand, hey, look, like AI companies are super forthright about uh, engaging with regulators before regulation needs to step in and like sort of good or bad things have happened in the world. On the other hand, that can be perceived as regulatory capture. To me, the truth is always somewhere in the middle, right? But it's also about like, what happens if we start regulating these models? And let's say there's a decision made that open source should continue to blossom, but even there, there are challenges. But let's say you do decide, hey, we got to regulate open source. Holy crap. Well, how do you do that? Like, are you going to run some process on every NVIDIA GPU that gives some like centralized authority visibility into what workloads are happening? Like suddenly in an attempt to keep the world safe, you end up creating Orwell's wildest nightmare, right? And so these things that seem on the surface like a good thing to do can quickly end up being, by virtue of this dual use tech, end up being implemented in a way that they become very authoritarian and very dystopian. Maybe the last thing I'd say on this is like, I think we need to just regulate models, different models differently. Generative AI is pretty broad. Like, like personally, I don't worry about these image generation models that much. Yeah, people talk about the defake problem and all this stuff, but those inherently those capabilities have existed. Maybe they're now more democratized, but like creation tools have been being democratized and we do see misinformation anyway in the last round of elections without any of this stuff. And so, yeah, maybe that supercharges it. But I think that turns into how we deal with software today, where software isn't foolproof. We all use iOS, Android, Windows. They all have zero day exploits. They all have vulnerabilities that need to be patched. And so I think in this like content world, we can figure out a way to sort of play that game of whack-a-mole and stay slightly ahead of it, or at least drastically mitigate the harm that happens. The stuff I worry about personally, this perhaps goes back to, you know, some of the GeoInt stuff that certainly like y'all are familiar with too. It's like multimodal understanding, right? Like all the, if you have multimodal models, like an uncapped version of GPT-4 or GPT-4 with vision, that stuff scares me because we've already seen examples of sort of these like red teaming, blue teaming attempts to say, let me take all the public webcam feeds that exist. And then I want to go look at all Instagram photos taken in certain areas. And then I want to do basically pattern of life analysis on where have these influencers been. And people are able to pinpoint, hey, this photo that this influencer took on Instagram was this time in Times Square. And this is when this happened. If you have these sort of type of models at the edge, or certainly in a kind of available without a very robust trust and safety layer, I think that could be very problematic because nation states and centralized actors are one thing, but once you give bad actors that are smaller and independent this ability, oh my God, things could get so scary because it's big brother in a box, right? And I don't know how exactly you implement that because I don't want, again, the solution there to be, well, we need to have visibility into every single model on every single device at the edge. And so I think about like what OpenAI is doing, perhaps the right way to do this. They announced vision, right? At, in March or April now at this point, and only now in September, almost October, is it being rolled out after they did sufficient red teaming to feel like, you know, they mitigated 80% of the risks and some of the other stuff that can be reactive to. So maybe that's the right way to do it. Put stuff out into the world, do some thinking in advance, and then be very responsive to the stuff out there. Yeah, I like that approach. And I also want to double back because we were just talking about the pace of innovation, right? And this rapid innovation with generative AI and you know, you're both a creator and a technologist. And I wanted to ask about your what, what excites you, but also what concerns you about this. The pace of innovation is exhausting. And all the AI creators that I talk to today are almost like 
way too exhausted. They just can't keep up with everything. And it's almost like we have to be a bit more of a sort of, you know, a hive mind, if you will, where different creators are specializing in different wells of stuff that's happening in a way. And then putting that knowledge together and sort of knowledge transferring to each other so we can keep the bigger picture, the broader map intact. Because again, like I said, like you got to be a generalist. You can't like hyper specialize because the magic happens when you put all these things together. And so like the other part as a technologist and perhaps like as a product builder that I worry about is like the precarious fate of startups, right? Like, you know, I'm an angel investor in companies. I'm an angel investor in Pika Labs. They're doing some very cool stuff and Backbone and then a couple other startups that haven't decloaked yet. And as I talk to a bunch of them, it's also exhausting, like that you have to have this like pivot party every three months, right? Oh, this new thing came out or the foundational model subsumed the thing that you had built a moat around. And so it's this like constant churn that you have to deal with. And so in many ways I say, it's, it feels like a young person's game right now. Like who has the hunger to sort of keep up with all of this stuff, especially as they're building out the chasm between new capability and a, and a sticky product is wide. And there's still a lot of iteration that needs to happen there. And then you need to keep doing it. And so it's fascinating. Like, what does that mean for startups? I think right now we're seeing this sort of unbundling effect happening. So to stick to creation tools, right? It's like people have taken what Adobe is doing or Autodesk is doing and other companies, right? And sort of unbundling the problem space. Hey, like we specialize in audio and there's like, you know, audio speech, music. We specialize in video, like, you know, text to video or image to video, video to video, 3D similar things, right? Reality capture versus text to 3D, et cetera. And I think there's going to be a phase where like all of that stuff gets subsumed and a rebundling happens, right? And maybe that'll be a bunch of acquisitions. And so I think like, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, to sort of the startup model there. Because the other funny trend underpinning all of this is like the VC model itself is people are rethinking it. And all the LPs are wondering if I get really good interest rates here and these are the returns you're giving me, do I even put money into VC? And parallel to that, hey, like you don't even really need a lot of money to make these startups, right? And so there's just so much change happening on so many fronts that it's almost hard to foresee. Like all the mental models we've had for tech thus far almost don't apply. And some people try to make the, this is just like industrialization. I'm like, homie, like this is so different than industrialization that happened over such a long period of time. And yes, the US economy went from being largely agrarian to industrialized over a 30, 40 year period. What's going to happen here? So I don't know. There's so many, so many concerns, and um, but also so many opportunities. So it's hard to see past the next three or four months. There's this like almost fog, you know, beyond that point. And yes, we'll have nebulous goals like AGI, but what the heck does AGI mean? I don't think anyone's really agreed upon the definition. And as the fog clears up, we just move the goalpost you know, to the next thing. Because, yo, if you showed Alan Turing GPT-4, I think you'd probably say it's like, this is AGI, like, but we're still sitting here and debating it. So what excites me is so much opportunity. What scares me is the immense amount of change that I don't see going away. From your perspective, and you have a front row seat on all of this emerging technology, how far are we and where are we in the process of getting AR and VR to the mainstream? It feels like every two years, you feel like, yes, the hockey puck moments is just next year. And then next year is going to be the year of VR. Then next year is going to be the year of AR. And I think it's interesting, like y'all talked about this in one of the episodes that I really loved is watching the Matthew Ball episode y'all did early on. And then after sort of the hype of circa 2021, 2022, 
And so it was interesting to me that the metaverse got positioned as AR, VR optional circa 2021, right? It's like, hey, you don't need it, right? Like Fortnite, that's the metaverse, right? VR chat, that's the metaverse. And like Rec Room, and where a lot of these platforms are getting a bunch of their growth is certainly not inside of headset. And so I think that gives time for the underpinning technology to proliferate and get out there, right? Like a bunch of the stuff we talked about for real world AR, certainly a bunch of the game engine tech underpinning this and all these other problems around like, you know, how do you have that massive Coachella-like experience where you're truly embodied with thousands of people and it feels exactly like that versus some cruddy pixel art web three rendition of that concert that just doesn't feel as hot. So I think AR VR is back in vogue now after that little winter. Apple certainly rebranded it to be spatial media and spatial computing. Hats off to Zuck and Meta really for carrying the hardware space, like really seeding the install base for a while now and is continuing to do that, right? And so what do I think are the main drivers or, or the blockers to AR VR adoption? Obviously, it's just install base of headsets, right? You are not going to have that sort of flywheel effect of like creation and consumption taking place until that crosses a certain threshold of devices. And so I think the Quest 3, oh my God, it's already better than the Quest Pro. I regret wasting money on it last year. And it's 499 So you've got the Tesla Roadster from Apple, super expensive, very high end. We'll probably buy that too, because you know we're all early adopters here. But on the other hand, yeah, the 499 one, that's like 80% of the bang at 20% of the buck. Oh my God, like I think Quest 3 is going to sell a record number of units. What did you think about those uh, no display, like the ribbon, putting some AI into glasses that have cameras and you know, they have an understanding of your surroundings. I find this fascinating. We had Google Glass was a major failure, but it looks to me that we're starting to see a new class of project maybe emerging that's not as immersive as they are VR, but that to kind of augment your experience because of that, that machinery, because you put cameras everywhere and you understand what's around you. It's a little bit scary as well. Yeah, it's like, uh, what's going to be the Robert Scoble version of the new Ray-Ban glasses fiasco? It's a funny one. And I joke about this with Robert too. I mean, like, you're bringing up a really good point here, Mark, which is like, it feels like Meta's strategy could be viewed as two ways, right? It's like, you keep making these headsets, they're still VR headsets, kind of what Apple's doing. Let's make them pass through, make them mixed reality, so to speak, and kind of start slimming them down like pancake lenses, slimmer form factor on one end of the spectrum. But fully immersive experiences, right? On the other hand, you've got these sort of passive experiences where you keep putting sensors on a form factor that resembles that dream of always on AR glasses, but no display, not immersive. Already, that's so cool for a couple of things. You know, we were talking about visual positioning system and stuff like that. Like, gosh, I hate doing the sixth off dance with a cell phone, right? Oh, okay, let me extract enough feature points. And then the matching happens. Okay, I'm localized now. What if your headset's just like your glasses are doing that passively? And all these multimodal capabilities on the understanding side are going to be awesome. And so I think like you could view it either as like approaching it from both ends of the spectrum and they'll sort of meet in the middle as a way of hedging your bets, or you can view it as burning the candle at both ends, right? Like, I think we have to fast forward five or 10 years to see what the right decision is. Like, I'm curious if Apple is going to do something similar because there was all these rumors about there being lightweight glasses in development. And then at the last mile, they made the decision to do this like, MR headset instead. Will that change? There's also a constellation of devices with AirPods that have like really fancy IMUs on them and all these other platform capabilities that could come together in this sort of Voltron, perfect AR meets VR device. But I think the last piece that was missing, 
I think always for AR or VR was language, which these generative models solve. In another word, like spatial computing, the dream was, hey, y'all, it's way more intuitive. Like you don't need your toot off mouse and now you can use your hands and it's all spatial and your brain. We work in a 3D world every single day. You see a doorknob, you know exactly what to do with it. You don't need to build some new mental model. But language is one that was missing, right? Like, so if you think you talked about Google Glass circa 2013, and I was definitely a nerd that got Google Glass Explorer edition, but holy crap, like voice assistants sucked back then. It was the, like really the ML era, like the ImageNet and Post era hadn't even really taken off, right? And so in many ways, that primitive of language, being able to talk intuitively to these agents that are chatbots now, that perhaps get embodied in these virtual spaces is going to be very exciting. And to be able to search what you see, query what you see, all that stuff that's stuck in a lens app on your phone and Google can now come to your headset. So I think it's going to be very exciting to see how that pans out. But I don't know, what is going to be the first mainstream device? Is it going to be like VR going from niche to ubiquity? Or is it going to be something much lighter weight that many more people buy that gets progressively more immersive? That's hard to say, but Meta seems to be trying both. <laughs> you can see potentially, a lot, as you describe, a lot of utility. And I think the drive adoption is that utility because it will help people. I wanted to ask you a bit on maybe the application side. Like if you could wave your magic wand and bring one creative AI app or experience to life, what would you do? I want this intermediate creation tool between a 3D app, a compositing tool, and a nonlinear editor with collaboration capabilities. So to draw the analogy, I started off my career in product design and back then it was still like fireworks was still a thing. You did a lot of your design stuff in Illustrator and Photoshop. And then you did all your like sort of interactive prototyping just in fricking PDFs with like hyperlinks. And then along came Sketch and then along came Figma, obviously that brought collaboration all together. And suddenly you didn't need all these other tools. And so I think like where creation in terms of the velocity and volume of content that creators are expected to create on one end has gone up. But the tools are still in that sort of waterfall approach, right? Specialized tools for specialized creators. Like you want to do crazy simulation, you got to go use Houdini, right? Like you want to go do anything in production quality, 3D animation, Maya is the tool at hand, Nuke, After Effects, similar in compositing, et cetera. Now we've seen some convergences happening, right? So obviously a big fan of Unreal Engine, Mark, like the stuff that you can do in Unreal Engine is phenomenal and virtual production is taking advantage of it. But for a lot of the stuff as a creator, you've got the, and I think we might've even talked about this in the prep call. It's like, you've got the baggage of a game engine, right? With you. It's the same thing on the Unity N2, right? Same thing on Blender. You can do a bunch of cool stuff in Blender. It has a compositing tool that not many people know. It has a real-time engine in it too, but it's got the bloat of a 3D tool. And so I want this like lighter weight tool where you can jump between this context of, you know, video editing, doing the compositing and 3D all in sort of one application. And the closest thing I have seen in the market is this application called HitFilm. And it's kind of like this After Effects meets Premiere with some light 3D tools, 3D capabilities, sort of on training wheels. It's like Creative Suite on training wheels, but it's not quite there for like modern creation tools. It's good for like, perhaps like 11 year old me that's just getting into stuff. Oh my God, what I would wish to, by the way, have that. Like, oh gosh, it would be, uh, yeah. I probably wouldn't have had the pirates a copy of of Maya <laughs> and After Effects in that case. But I think that could happen now because that tech has been in incubated sort of in. The other funny thing is like a bunch of that real-time segmentation, light estimation, all that stuff is sitting in like AR platforms like AR Core, Kit, Snapchat. 
but creators are still stuck with this sort of ill-tailored tapestry of tools. So I have plenty of thoughts on why this doesn't exist and all that, but maybe all these new AI capabilities can justify that investment to reimagine the all-in-one creation tool, because gosh, I would certainly love that. Before we let you go, Patrick and I have a very interested question to ask you. You have 1.3 million subscribers across YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, Substack, Maven, and maybe even other platforms. So how did you do that? And what kind of advice do you have for people like us to get that exposure? You asked, how did I build up that audience? It definitely happened in phases and tranches. Push one was probably circa 2016 to 2018. YouTube was the first platform I started on. And I think I was lucky in that as YouTube VR started to pop off, I just started making 360 and VR media content and a couple pieces go viral then. Like one of my top video has 54 million views and it was the video that I never expected to go viral. It's like this like pumpkin zombie. It's like a Halloween piece I made. Or it's like a pumpkin zombie coming down at you in front of the Transamerica building. And so what I learned there is like, just put out reps, keep making stuff and something's going to pop. If you find that content market fit, and always retrospectively, you'll find inklings of that. And then you got to double down on it. So if you have a piece go viral, look at why. And then honestly, it feels weird as a creator. Like you think like, oh, I just said this already. Why would I make another variation of it? But the world is a big place. And the way algorithms work now, 99.99% of people haven't heard of you. They haven't heard that message. So you have to keep repeating that message over and over again, whether that's like an informational message or a visual message, right? So that was YouTube. It took me a while to get to even 100K. I think like 2018 is where I really started reaching that point. Then the real push too was for me, like many other creators over the pandemic, when lockdown happened, suddenly I didn't need to sit in a godforsaken bus from San Francisco to Mountain View. And I just started cranking out way more content on TikTok. So I got in early on TikTok and then YouTube shorts when that popped up. And that was almost perfect because like, I think a lot of people find long form video creation very daunting, but I think whether you're into visual creation or informational content, it is very easy to make a 15 to 60 second short. Like you could pick up your phone, capture the video, edit it all in app if you want to, or very quickly do it in a couple hours on another tool. And so I think like being early to a platform or early to a technology and doubling down on it is another lesson. So right now, like LinkedIn video is like, such under underpriced attention. So if anyone's trying to grow on LinkedIn, you should be posting short form video there for sure. Same thing with Twitter right now, like Elon and X are clearly pushing longer form video, sort of the thread era is gone, longer form posts work there too. So you should be getting in on that and sort of like the thing that the platform is pushing, take that and bring your unique message to it. And then finally, the last tranche where I'm at today is like, I'm obsessed with Twitter and X, right? And Substack too. It's like, I think Twitter and X I will never get used to saying X. It's just so hard being like, like, what are you, like an X creator? Like that just feels weird to say, but that's where the AI community is. And I'm taking like, it's a refreshing change for me having made like sort of visual shorts for a long time to start getting into, hey, how do you make these things? Like what's the story behind this new research paper that just came out? And how do you contextualize it for entrepreneurs, for creators, for anyone who's interested? And I've been enjoying doing that. So you kind of have to focus on a platform and move on to the next thing. But the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's never late, too late to get started. I felt like, I mean, I had like 2000 followers on Twitter or X, like in, in February of this year, I'm pushing 35 or 40 K right now, hoping to get to hundred K, but it like, 
it felt so daunting. It's like, oh my God, I wish I'd started like five years ago. No, no, no. Just start today. You never know what's going to happen. And if you have a unique voice, like, which many people do, like the platform is eventually going to see your value and you're going to get that moment. And when you get that moment, oh my God, please triple down on it. Don't get a viral post and make your next post five months later. Ah, there are times I've done that on TikTok and I, I deeply regret it. So hopefully some takeaways for folks who are thinking about social media. I think, you know, we like to wrap up the show with a shout out or shouts outs to any organization or, or people. I got to give a shout out to Google. Got to give a shout out to Deloitte. I got to play with all the AR VR stuff in the innovation group at Deloitte and the folks across both these organizations I mean, supported some really lofty, crazy ideas, right? Like I was the person that would do the opposite of advice that my mentors gave me. The mentor's advice was always do the tried and tested thing, move a metric that matters. And that's how you get promoted. And I was lucky enough to like, you know, get promoted three times over five years at Google doing all the crazy stuff. And that wouldn't have happened without all the mentors, the colleagues and stuff that supported these crazy asinine ideas all the way up the stack to all the VPs. So really, really thankful for that. And then of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out my parents, right? Like I'm a young boy from India. And if you know anything about, you know, really any conservative culture, whether it's uh, certainly an Asian culture, there's three careers you can choose, doctor, lawyer, and engineer. And they did a great job of not indoctrinating that type of thinking in me. And as a kid, like, oh gosh, I really want to go like do this 3D animation thing. They supported it, but I think they did a right job of giving me like a sensible idea of like the pragmatic realities of that too. And despite getting into my dream film school, USC, I ended up studying computer science and business. And in retrospect, thank the Lord I did that. Especially who could have thought creative technology would converge like this, but shout out to them. They really supported me early on, got me internet access super early and then supported all my crazy dreams outside of work. And so gosh, like it wouldn't be where I was if not for the amazing companies that I worked for and certainly the two people that brought me into this world. So shout out mom and dad. It was amazing to have you with us today. I strongly encourage our listeners to check you out. You're everywhere, but I think in every platform, you bring a pretty unique point of view. People got a chance to hear how articulated you are and you are the forefront of many of the things that are happening in the creative tech industries. And I, I really appreciate the depth of your thinking and the fact that you look at all aspects of it and not just Surfing a trend for, for the purpose of gathering followers. So I think that the depth of your content is quite amazing. So I cannot, I encourage everybody to check you out wherever you are. And um, so thank you for being there with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Of course, a huge thank you to our ever-growing audience as well. We're not as, as big as uh, Bilaval, but you can reach us for feedback on our website, buildingtheopenmetaverse.org, as well as on our LinkedIn page our YouTube channel, and of course, all the podcast platform. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you again, Bilabao.